0: Good morning, everyone. The next uh, few Sundays, or counting this one, we're going to be talking about, or I guess I'm going to be the one that's talking about um, corporate worship. What it looks like. What it is. Our involvement in it and uh, I also want to recommend a book to you we've been going through this book uh, with uh, worship leaders and uh, it is jammed pack it is it's small but uh, it is dense it is so full of, of good instruction biblical instruction and, and Has a helpful, even has a helpful scriptural index, uh, so you know he's not just pulling these things out of thin air. It's Corporate Worship by Matt Merker. Corporate Worship by Matt Merker. Matt Merker is the uh, fellow who uh, leads worship at the T4G conference, and he's understood to be uh, one of the the premier voices uh, concerning corporate worship, faithful and healthy worship. And so... Uh, he has packed a lot into this little in this this little book and so I would highly recommend that you uh, grab you a copy um, and read it if you or anything like me you'll read it in one sitting that's that's what happened with me I, I couldn't put it down it was so packed full So that's what we're going to be dealing with going to be dealing with corporate worship for the next little bit and uh, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence here, but I do feel like it's, it's, it's necessary to uh, kind of state the obvious when we speak of uh, corporate worship. So when we speak of corporate worship, we are speaking of just that, corporate worship. We are not speaking of private or personal worship Because that is something that's done, well, what? Privately, personally. I also want to go further and say I don't mean by corporate worship, private worship done in a group or in proximity to other private or personal worshipers. Again, there is a place for private worship, namely, privately... And that place is not corporate worship. I know that for some of you that sounds insulting and I promise I don't mean it that way. I just want it to be exceedingly clear what I mean by corporate worship because it does seem in a multitude of churches today unclear what we mean by corporate worship over against private or personal worship. Corporate worship is that worship we do corporately. Let me try to illustrate. Dale uh, tells me of an event that I am interested in that I would like to see happen that takes place every so often at uh, Frankie's Place downtown. Pretty good place to eat. Uh, Called, I'm assuming that this is what it's called, or at least this is what Dale calls it. It's called a silent rave. Folks get together at Frankie's and put their ear pods in and they listen to their favorite dance music and they go to town dancing to their own tunes. They're in proximity to other folks, perhaps even bumping into each other while they're busting a move. (laughs) However, even though they are together, everyone is wrapped up in their own musical and dance experience. And may I say, dear ones, corporate worship is nothing akin to a silent rave. We do not come together simply so we can be in proximity to each other while we all have have our own private experiences. To imagine this is what we gather for is to utterly and completely miss the point of corporate worship. But I'm not going to be spending the next few Lord's Days talking about what corporate worship is not. So let's go to Scripture to see if we can get a good understanding of what corporate worship is. There are several passages that speak to corporate worship. As a a matter of fact, we touched many of them as we move through uh, the book of Ephesians. As a matter of fact, the, the fact that God assembles His people for the express purpose of worshiping Him corporately is really a biblical theology, uh, a theme of biblical theology that runs all throughout Scripture from Genesis when God assembles Adam and Eve and commanded them to serve Him and to serve each other in a particular way for His glory all the way to Revelation when all of God's people redeemed, are gathered by him around the throne to worship together forever and ever. But, I mean, I had to pick something. So, I think that there's no other place, maybe in, in Scripture, that speaks more pointedly to a local congregation about what it should look like when the people of God are gathered to worship, as does chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. And Stash was like, when I was given the the, uh, passages of Scripture for the media shout, he was like, is that it? (laughs) Is that it? Is that it? So I'm not going to preach all four chapters, be not afraid, but I am going to look closely at uh, several verses in those chapter, chapters to see what's going on and how Paul instructs the Corinthian believers to appropriately conduct themselves when they are gathered with God's people in corporate worship. So we want to first look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want to read verses 17 through 22, and then we'll drop down, skip over some verses, and read 33 through 34. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Then verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So, the first thing that I want to say about this passage of Scripture and about corporate worship is that corporate worship is about unity. Now, this passage obviously deals primarily with the Lord's Supper element of corporate worship, and we will understand. Uh, in, the next little, in the next few Sundays what that, what that means, an element of corporate worship. But it does deal primarily with the Lord's Supper element of corporate worship, but it speaks to a larger principle about corporate worship that I want to point out, and that is corporate worship is about togetherness or unity. Communion or the Lord's Supper was something the early church did often, and, and in many contexts, they did it every time They met. It was also common for the Lord's Supper to be part of larger feasts known as love feasts. And so they would have feasts and then they would separate the bread and the wine and they would commemorate the Lord's Supper as it spiritually nourished their souls as an ordinary means of grace. And, and this was not inconsistent when the institution of the Lord's Supper, which took place as a part of the Passover Seder meal, in uh, the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. And he would have set, Christ would have set aside the bread as a part of the Seder meal and broke it apart and said, This is my body broken for you. And he would have set apart the second cup of the Seder meal, which was the cup of wine. And he would have said, this is my blood that is shed for you. And so he is illustrating his broken body and shed blood in, with the bread and the wine in the context of a larger feast. And so that's why they were doing that kind of thing. And apparently in Corinth, like probably a lot of other churches in that time, you had some wealthy folks and you had some poor folks, right? And in the early days, the church would often gather in one of the wealthier people's homes because it was a bigger place. It had more rooms. It had better. uh, uh, It was better. It better accommodated them together, and uh, and and they would have uh, eaten together, shared a meal together. And so, what appears to be happening at Corinth is that the church would gather. They would share a meal and partake of the Lord's Supper together as part of their corporate gatherings. But what was happening is that the wealthier folks, who probably would have brought more food and uh, more sumptuous foods uh, than the poor folks, if the poor folks could, could have even uh, brought anything at all, what these wealthy folks were doing is they were meeting together in a separate room than the poor folks, and they were, they were going ahead and eating their own food and drinking their own wine, even apparently to the point of drunkenness. It's possible that the wealthier people may have been able to meet early because they wouldn't have had to work the long hours that the the poor folks had to worship. And so when the poor folks arrived, there wouldn't be any food left for those who couldn't bring as much or couldn't bring anything at all. And Paul gives strong rebuke and warning for this Because it was fueling the factions in the church at Corinth. You had wealthy Christians who could really worship. And then you had the poor Christians who just had to make do with what they did or didn't have. Do you see what they were doing? They were creating division by using an essential element of corporate worship for their own selfish purposes. I mean, I'm certain that when the rich people left, they felt ministered to. And they were probably thinking, what's wrong with these bunch of poor people? Aren't they getting what they need? I certainly got what I needed out of the service, out of the gathering. And Paul says, that's not the Lord's Supper. Paul's saying, it might be supper, but it ain't the Lord's Supper. It wasn't true corporate worship because they lost the togetherness, the unity aspect of that essential element of corporate worship. And listen, anytime we lose the unity or the togetherness aspect of any element of corporate worship, we miss the point of that element and the point of corporate worship. It makes that element void of its true power in the corporate gathering. And that is why it is so important that when we worship corporately, we worship, what? Corporately, together, unified, not selfishly, in proximity to others like the Corinthians were doing. That's what verse 33 and 34 is about. It's a correction. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry or if it's just about filling your belly, you can do that privately. You can do that at home. Paul's admonition was for them, wait for one another. And that can even be translated, share with one another. Paul says, if you're hungry, eat at home. He's saying that the corporate gathering is not about you fulfilling your needs. You can do that at home. If they came to eat or to fill their bellies, they were missing the point. The point is sharing with one another. The corporate gathering is about being together. It's about sharing together. It's about breaking down all those social barriers, like rich and poor, like Jew and Gentile, that that tend to divide folks, tended back then and still tend to divide folks now. And worshiping together... In unity, if we make it something else, I'm not saying it's not worship. But I am saying it's not corporate worship. Let's look now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. And then we'll look over to 14 and read not the whole chapter. Now there are, are it's one through twelve. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For, well, I'm at the end there. I could read on, but I better not. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 12. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air, There. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning, but if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Corporate worship is about unity, And corporate worship is about mutual edification. In chapter 12, Paul essentially, positively lays out what spiritual gifts are. And this is not a comprehensive list of the gifts of the Spirit. I don't don't know that there is a comprehensive list in Scripture. But he lays out what the spiritual gifts are and the the purpose of those spiritual gifts. And there's much that can be said about spiritual gifts, but what What is blatantly obvious is that their primary purpose is for the good of the church. And that's what verse 7 says. Paul goes on to illustrate his point with the analogy of a human body, showing that the whole body needs each of its members with all of their gifts and functions to operate in those functions so the body can operate normally, healthfully, and fulfill the purpose of the whole body. He goes on to show that each member is important no matter how small or uncomely that member may seem. The point is that each member of the body of Christ has been given particular giftedness to function in a certain way so the whole body can be healthy and functional. Our giftedness is not about us. It is about the common good. It is about the rest of the body, the building up of the body. Spiritual gifts are for mutual edification. Now, in chapter 14, Paul gets down to the nitty-gritty and deals with the way Corinthians were abusing the spiritual gifts in corporate worship in particular, speaking primarily about the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And now, this is an open-handed issue with us, so I'm not here to engage in the debate over the continuation or cessation of some spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy... And I would even argue that to turn this passage into merely proof texting for either side of that debate misses the main point of the passage. Paul is dealing with those who were using the spiritual gifts in a way they were not intended to be used. They were using them to edify themselves in the corporate gathering instead of edifying the church. The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. Paul is saying that while there may not be anything inherently sinful about speaking in tongues when they are gathered, but if there is no interpretation, it is useless. It's as useless as he says as a flute that doesn't play distinct melodic notes. Which Bob doesn't do. It's as useless as a bugle that blows but doesn't blow the right note to warn the troops to prepare for battle when it is time to prepare for battle. It's as useless as speaking into the air. And why is it useless? Because it is not for the building up of the church, that is why Paul is saying. Paul's not saying it's useless because you do it and I'm against it. Paul's saying it's useless because it doesn't build up the church. It's just a, you've made it about you, and you have robbed it of its influence and power. Matt Merker is exceptionally help, helpful in this in the book that I that I recommended, Corporate Worship, commenting on First Corinthians chapter twelve and. Uh, and chapter 14. He says, we gather to edify and to be edified. Our corporate worship should undermine self-centeredness. We come to be built up because what we desperately need it. Yet also in God's providence, other members need us to come and build them up too. We are simultaneously doctors and patients in God's hospital, binding up others' wounds and receiving the medicine our own souls need. And that is even what the Lord's Supper is about. As Paul touched on in 1 Corinthians 11 and and what we will celebrate here in a moment. God calls church members to minister to one another by speaking the truth in love. We often imagine this is still murker. We often imagine that taking place we often imagine that taking place in small group Bible studies, one-on-one discipling relationships, and informal fellowship, and it does. But a church service is one of the primary settings in which believers speak the truth to one another. When we recite a creed or read scripture aloud together, or sing a psalm, or vocalize Amen after a prayer. We're not just following the leader's directions. We are discipling one another and building up the body to maturity. Right? When I am hearing you singing, Great is thy faithfulness. And I know as Dale uh, said at the opening that you're tired or you're hurting uh, or, or whatever it may be that you're facing. But I hear you say, great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, it ministers to me because I may not be as tired and as hurting as you are, but when I am as tired and hurting as you are, I'm going to remember that Dan, when he was tired and hurting, sang about God's greatness, sang about God's faithfulness. And it's going to edify me. And it's going to build me up. That's why we sing loudly. That's why we sing together. That's why we want our voices to be heard. That's why we say amen when Brian gets finished praying. Together we all say amen because we are joining with Brian and praying that prayer with him. And we are confirming that's what we're doing when we give the amen to it. When we nod our heads or we reflectively uh, respond to the preaching, we are all mutually edifying one another. That is what the corporate worship service is designed to do. Many of you may remember that Ephesians 4.15 calls Christians, as Merkur alluded to, to speak the truth to one another in love for the unity of the body of Christ. And then one chapter later in Ephesians 5.18-19, the church is called to be filled with the Spirit and to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in their, in, to the Lord in their hearts. And we're, we'll say more about this uh, next week, I think, but that is precisely what we do in the singing portion of corporate worship. We are speaking the truth to one another in a love-filled, Spirit-filled way by singing to one another and singing to the Lord. We are using the God-given gift of our voice in the joyous expression of singing to build one another up. And, And singing is just one example of the many ways God has gifted us to edify each other in times of corporate worship. So I want you to think of corporate worship as a time of using our gifts for mutual edification, not self-edification. I recently shared a, a video clip of Mark Dever on, uh, Foo's, on the Foo's book. Uh, pastor of, he's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He's uh, an ecclesiology expert that, that ecclesiology deals with the doctrine of the church, and he's the co-founder of uh, Nine Marks, which is a Ministry Dedicated to Building Healthy Churches. And in the video, he uses the analogy of being fed in the corporate worship and says that when we come to corporate worship, we need to stop trying to put the spoon in our mouths, but we need to look for ways to put the spoon in someone else's mouth. So when we come to corporate worship to nourish someone else, but everybody else is coming to corporate worship to nourish someone else, You can rest assured that you are going to be giving the nourishment that others need. And you are also going to be receiving the nourishment that you desperately need. Corporate worship is about mutual edification. When we come to our corporate gatherings, look for ways to use your spiritual giftedness to edify others and to edify the body as a whole. This is mutual edification. This is corporate worship. And finally, First Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. 11, 12, and 14 finds 1 Corinthians 13, finds in 1 Corinthians 13, a linchpin. Love is, is the linchpin. What is the motivating factor in all of this? What is the thing that drives us to set aside what we like or what we think we need in order that our brothers and sisters in Christ are built up? What causes us to be other-focused instead of self-focused in corporate worship? It is love for one another. This is the linchpin that holds it all together. Love is the catalyst for corporate for corporate worship. I can make arguments that would convince the greatest skeptic. I can preach mutual edification in the corporate gathering until I lose my voice. I can recommend every book that has been written on corporate worship by Keller, Chapel, Dever, Merker, Piper, MacArthur, Carson, Coughlin, the Gettys, and the list can go on. But it will be to no avail if we don't have love. On the other hand, nothing will be more convincing that we will inevitably be built up when we begin to build one another up as when the love of God is ignited in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we begin to seek the good of the body for the glory of God. May it be so in an ever deepening way at Church on the Way. Again, Mer- Merker is helpful here in his comments on 1 Corinthians 13 when he speaks of the superior gift of love in the corporate gathering. The greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Should you take the Lord's Supper before the whole body has gathered? 1 Corinthians 11:21. No, because love is patient. First Corinthians 13, 4. Should you look down on those with seemingly less important gifts? 1 Corinthians 12, 21-25. No, because love does not envy or boast. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Should you ignore those who are suffering? 1 Corinthians 12, 26. No, because love bears all things, hopes all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Should you take pride in speaking in tongues? No, because tongues will cease, but love never ends. 1 Corinthians 13.8 So it is love that drives us to wait and share, to sing to one another, and speak the truth in love to mutual edification. It is what causes us to consider the weak and the suffering. It is love that gladly acknowledges and rejoices in the giftings of others, even when they are put forward and you are not. Really, folks, if we don't have love, we can have all of the trappings of what the church and society deem a great worship experience and still have absolutely nothing. Not a zip, a zero with the rim rubbed out of it. God, fill us with your love, fill us with your spirit. So, the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what corporate gatherings should look like, how they should be shaped. What I wanted to do today is just begin the series by laying a foundation for what corporate worship is and what it's about. It's about the people of God, called by God and gathered by God, assembled together to worship the God who has called us with one unified voice. Corporate worship is about unity, it is about mutual edification. It is about us taking responsibility for our gifts and talents and using them to edify and serve one another in love and to glorify God together. And this cannot be accomplished privately. That is why we must gather and worship corporately. No wonder the author of Hebrews says in 10, 24 through 25, and let us consider how to stir Up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Divine Creator, Sovereign Lord over everything. Redeemer of your people. Lord of the church. We do not know how to pray as we ought. The most fundamental, basic activity of a Christian... And we don't know how to do it. We need your spirit. Lord of the church. Command your church. Speak to us. Tell us what to do. Tell us what pleases you. Show us Lord in your word. For that is where you have spoken. And then fill us with. Your spirit, God. And as your spirit fills our lives, your love is shed abroad in our hearts. And we begin to live in such a way that pleases you and it touches every aspect of our life. It touches when we are alone, when we are with others, and when we are gathered with your people. Teach us, Lord, Teach us through your word. And we praise you for it in Christ's name. We are...